You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Happy Easter. If I were to ask you what today would be about, I'd say, uh, well, new clothes. Maybe about candy, right? Easter has the best candy of the year for me. Uh, you might think lilies, uh, flowers, springtime, bunnies, a particular bunny. And, uh, and then, oh yeah, an, an empty, an empty tomb. And, uh, and then ham, right? And then, and it's all kind of jumbled right all in there together. You know, when, when we think of Easter, a lot of things come to mind. And, uh, we think, you know, Easter is about some, some man coming back to life, right? Well, I just, let's just take a quick survey. And, uh, you know, if you're not sure, that's cool. But, um, uh, I'm not going to put you under pressure, but show of hands if you think that, that, that this, this whole Easter thing is a true story. Go ahead. The, someone came back to life. That's the majority of us. So let's just pray and go home and uh, have our ham. All right. Father, we, we got it all figured out. So um, we don't. Because, you know, honestly, though a lot of us claim to believe uh, that the tomb is empty and the grave clothes have no body in them, uh, we live like we're practical atheists. We don't live with that resurrection power affecting our life or God's word influencing the daily life that we live. I mean, uh, most live like it never happened at all. I mean, have you ever wondered that maybe, just perhaps, it's a hoax, that it's a trick, that it never really happened, that it's just some sort of Christian legend and that this is the religion of choice for uh, a large majority of Americans and, you know, it just kind of took off around the world. And uh, if we really believed it, what it was, you know, maybe some of us, we think like the Easter Bunny, he's fun to believe in, you know? And, and in the back of our mind, we're like, maybe it didn't happen, but you know what? Sure is a good story, isn't it? And though we stop my believing in some of the other aspects of some holidays, the resurrection is just one of those things that we, we kind of feel like we have to believe. But I want you to realize that the whole idea of someone coming back to life, as crazy as it is today, it was crazy then, even more so then, because they never had a story of a resurrected king before. All they had was someone who raised the dead. Jesus had already risen the dead from the dead, a little girl, and uh, Lazarus, we know for sure. We know that in the Old Testament, there was a prophet that raised a a boy from the dead. So they had heard stories and seen Jesus, but, but they'd never seen anybody mutilated the way that Jesus was and yet live again. I mean, the whole concept of resurrection. Here's, I, I was in uh, Chicken Express. Anybody here like Chicken Express? Whoop. All right. I was in Chicken Express in Saxe, which uh, if you work there, sorry to say this, got one of the worst service in the world. Uh, anyhow, their chicken is hard to beat, right? So I go into Chicken Express. I'm going inside uh, because uh, just was busy line outside. And I sat, ordered, and I sat next to a booth where there was a mom, a little girl. She's like maybe four. And then a, a a couple of boys, and one of them, I think, was her son. And mom was at the counter, and this little boy, for sake of argument, I don't remember the boy's name, but let's just say it's Jesse. But the conversation went something like this. She goes, um, Jesse, 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 Jesse. What? Are there such thing as bad words? What? Jesse, 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 
What? Do bad words exist? Do bad words exist? Jesse, do bad words exist? Do bad words exist? Jesse, Jesse, do bad words exist? I don't know. I don't know. He's, you know, he was probably about 11. Finally, the mom comes up, hands out the chicken. She goes, mom, 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 do bad words exist? Mom, do bad words exist? Mom, mom, do bad words exist? Mom, do bad words exist? They go over to the table. I'm, I'm dying because I think it's hilarious. She wouldn't, mom was ignoring the whole, mom, do bad words exist? Mom, do bad, she's leaning over the table, you know, like, mom, do bad words exist? Do bad words exist? And she goes, <laughs> she goes, what? Why are you asking a bad word about bad words? Do bad words exist? She goes, yes. She goes, oh, well, Sarah said they don't. Sarah said they don't exist. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> that was in the conversation. I thought, man, that's so funny. You know, and in some ways we kind of relate the gospel to the same thing. We're like, um, did, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is he alive? Mom, mom, did Jesus really come back to life? God, did he, did he, did he really come back to life? God, did you really come? God, did you really come? Some people are going, I, I don't know, I don't know. And some say yes, but stop talking about it because they don't want to talk about it. And then, but the reality is, is that she won't believe they exist until she what? Here's one. <laughs> and she goes, <gasps> or until she says when she gets spanked for it. We don't know which will come first. But the idea that, that some people, I think, are just like that when it comes to the resurrection. It's the most crucial moment in history. Without it, the cross is just a sad story. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to revisit this throughout the morning for a little bit. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, If Christ was not raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your trust in God is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God. For we all have said God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still in your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ have perished. If it's true then those grave clothes are the centerpiece of God's kingdom. And there are a lot of people that say that it never happened. Here's some of the things that are said about the cross and about the grave. There's what's known as the swoon theory. In 1965, a book came out, and this book suggested that maybe there's a theory that maybe Jesus planned the whole thing and that he actually planned his own arrest worked it in his favor, and had himself drugged just before he went to the cross. That somehow uh, Simon of Cyrene drugged him, and when he got to the cross, he phased out, he swooned as if he were dead. And then in the grave, his apostles came and juiced him back to life with this magical, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, herbal drug or something. And then he he rose again, the stories were spread, and then he moved to Egypt, married an Egyptian princess, and became a warrior monk. Actual theory, ridiculousness. Uh, twin theory. There's another guy that came out in the 70s and 60s uh, that basically said, perhaps Jesus had a twin brother. And they were separated at birth, and they didn't know it. And when Jesus was in town, his twin brother basically took on the identity of Christ to receive the glory and that he proclaimed the message that Jesus was alive because the message had to be spread to save face for his brother. 
There's another theory. It's known as, well, you guys might have heard of Muslims. Well, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet and that on the cross that God somehow magically changed him into another person and that he switched places with Judas of Isca- uh, Judas Iscariot or possibly that he changed places with one of the other brothers and that Jesus was never crucified. It was another disciple who was made to look like Jesus. So when Jesus rose from the grave, he didn't really rise from the dead because he never died at all. Then there's also the watchtower theory, and that is the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus died on the cross, though he's not God. He died on the cross, and that his body remained in the grave, and that the only thing that came out was his spirit. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus only rose in spirit only, and that his body was just a loner, and that that was not the point of the resurrection. The Jewish theory actually says, and they still say to this day, that his body was stolen. That just as uh, they had feared, the disciples had taken his body. Another one is the Gnostics theory, uh, made popular by books like the Da Vinci Code, that basically said that Jesus never died at all, but he married Mary Magdalene, and he moved to France, and he started the royal bloodline, which is the kings of France. Ridiculous. And then there's um, the wrong tomb theory, that they all were completely delusional and went to the wrong tomb. Then there's the hallucination theory that they were somehow, all of them were in delusional states of mind where they were tricked by somebody in the group to believe that they were seeing a hallucination. And then there's James Cameron's theory, you know, from the Titanic avatar. He basically purchased a, a, um, a grave, a, a tomb that said Jesus and his son. And he made a documentary, but basically said that Jesus never died. He actually went on to have a family and they found the grave bones, uh, which was actually found 27 years ago, made into a complete, exposed to be a complete fraud. But he bought it and he still, just a couple years ago, still tells us that it's true. The idea is there's a lot of people that have just said a lot of things about him. A lot of things that have said, how could a 2,000-year-old story still matter? How could a convicted, condemned, and executed man unleash three centuries of power that could change lives? It all comes down to this. And I want you to, we're going to unpack, we're going to go back in time today, but I want you to write down this. This is where it starts. We must all realize this, that every person must make a decision about the resurrection. Every person on the planet whether they are from any culture or any race or any, uh, you know, wealth background or any religion must acknowledge or condemn or make a decision about the resurrection. All of life rests upon those grave clothes. Everything that we're here standing for, everything in the world, it's not something we can ignore. It's not something we can just kind of tuck in the back of our mind and say, yeah, I think it's true. Were those scars meaningful? Were they just a model of love or meant for something greater? Easter reminds us we must make a decision about Jesus. 2,000 years ago, an adopted son of a local Galilean carpenter turned revolutionary began to preach. He began to tell people that he was God in the flesh the Messiah, the one that they had been looking for to save mankind. For three years, he preached an upside-down kingdom. His followers were convinced he was the one until he was arrested, and they were shocked that the one who raised the dead and healed the mutilated and sick was now mutilated and dead. Let's go back in time. Thursday night, that's where we're going to start. There are four days we're going to look at, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 
On Thursday night, the disciples all gathered together to uh, pack. They were in a city that was packed with people for a holiday called the Passover. It's the greatest uh, holiday, a holy festival day of all of Jewish uh, uh, history. It is the celebration of the release of, uh, of the people from Israel from Egypt. You know, when Moses led them out, that escape from Egypt is celebrated as the Passover and how God let them free, set them free from the chains of Egypt. So they celebrated Easter with the, uh, with the lamb and the, and the wine represented the lamb that was slain for them that night and uh, the blood that was spilt from that lamb that was slain that night before they were set free from uh, Egypt. So they got together. They gathered together and they laughed together. They, they talked together. And then Jesus started doing some strange things. Jesus began to get down on his hands and on his feet and began to wash the feet of his disciples and begin to clean their feet. They were offended because of Jesus. We are the ones who should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, unless you allow me to wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Wow, that that probably didn't even make any sense to them. He began to wash their feet. And then he had what was known as as the Passover meal. uh, And and they were having it at sundown, which considered as Passover because the day actually began when the sun went down for them. The Passover did. And what would have been a a, a traditional, what's known as now called the Seder, he he lifted up the bread, broke, and he says, Now, guys, this is my body broken for you. And they're like, What? And he passed it out and he said, eat this. If you want to be a part of my life, you must eat me. You must participate. Unless you eat my flesh, you can have no place in my life. They're like, what? He's crazy talk. And then later he, he lifted up the fruit of the vine and he says, this is now the covenant of the new blood. And you, you must now drink of my blood if you want to be part of my life. This is now something I want you to do in remembrance of me. And they're like, what are you talking about? And then Jesus laid it on the line. He says, guys, listen, we've talked tonight. We've laughed tonight. I've washed your feet. We've, we've had this, what is now we know as his last meal with them before his death. The Bible says he prayed with them very earnestly. And then he said this, he says, guys, listen, it's now here. I've been trying to tell you I'm going to die. They were pretty upset about it. This is what John records in, uh, in John 13, 19. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you might believe that I am. And I want you to write this down. And this is important before we unpack this, is that Jesus' life was not taken. It was purposely given. Jesus' life was not robbed from him. He was not an innocent victim who was, you know, maliciously benign and against his will, abused and beaten and hung on a cross to die. This was his plan, yes, because he came to die. He'd been telling them this all along. And he says, I'm telling you this now so that when it's about to happen here shortly, that you know that this is part of the plan. This was his mission. This is why he came. A year earlier, he was with a, a, a minister of the, uh, of the old school law. His name was Nicodemus. He was a local leader. Nicodemus came to him and said, Jesus, uh, your, your teachings are amazing. The authority in which you speak in is amazing. Tell me, how can I be a part of the kingdom? Jesus began to unwrap to him 
that you must trust and believe in me and allow yourself to be given a new life in me. He became confused even more. So Jesus gave him probably the most popular verse in the scripture, a verse that even people that don't live for Jesus sometimes know. John three sixteen, he says, for God so loved the world, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that so Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But what we don't know is that next verse, and that he says, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is why I'm here. I'm not here to condemn you, to slap your hands with a ruler. I'm not here to mock you and to, to drive you into hell and to, and to viciously mark those that are sinners. I'm here to redeem those who are sick in soul and heart. And he says this. He says, I've come to save, not to condemn. Verse 18, but whoever believes in him, he's talking about himself, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Think about that for a minute. Is already condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Here's the deal. He came to rescue us. We were created, you and me, to walk with God. In in the creation of the world, Adam decided to walk alone. He decided to do his own thing. And as we find out, God walked the garden without Adam. And what followed was generation and centuries of death and despair and anguish and sin and disease. Jesus came to rescue us back to that walk with God that we were created to be in. He was on the cross on purpose. So Friday morning, after that meal, they were shocked. They went to this place in this garden to pray. And he began to pray and cry out to the Father before he knew the pain that he was about to endure. And at that moment, Judas, who had left earlier, Judas, who was convinced that Jesus should have started a revolution and overthrown the government, I think in many ways Judas loved Jesus, but he was not a true believer. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus tells us. But he came to Jesus, and with a kiss, he betrayed his best friend. Jesus, at that point, was arrested. And what follows are three illegal court hearings. By the way, he was arrested about 1 a.m. in the morning on Friday, which is against Jewish law. He was condemned by Jewish authorities for blasphemy. He was accused by Roman authorities for inciting rebellion. And after being humiliatingly beaten and flogged, he was sentenced to die a violent death like a criminal. And he was on the cross by 9 a.m. on Friday morning. I want to walk through what happened. Some people say he never died. Well, let me tell you, there are seven fatal wounds that ensure that Jesus was dead. The first wound is a wound to the head. What they did, or actually to the face, is what they did is the the Jewish authorities arrested him. The Bible says they beat him to a pulp with their fist. They kicked him. They beat him. they, They smashed him. The Bible says that they even grabbed his beard and pulled his beard right out of his face. We're grabbing the hairs and ripping them out of his face. Again and again. They, now, I was thinking through this last night, and a lot of times, if we're in a fight, we know we're overpowered. We're this. We're going to cower. We're going to try to protect ourselves. But the Bible tells us that Jesus did not resist. 
He did not hide himself from the pain and suffering. And every time a, a blow was made to his face, he received it for us, for me, for you. He didn't cower in shame and try to block himself and, and wiggle and shake. Get off of me! He left himself to be beaten as they abused his face. After he was beaten by these soldiers, he was taken before Pilate, and Pilate, to appease the people, had him tortured with a device called a flagrum. And now, now these items had anywhere from five to nine tails, and they were made out of leather and bound together with rocks and stone and, and lead and, and, and bones. And they would tie them on, and they were quite heavy and quite painful. And to appease the possibility that he would not have to put him to death because he didn't want inside a riot. He was there to squelch rebellion among the Jewish population. But he took upon himself, Jesus, at that moment, an amount of pain and suffering that few ever lived through as they began to whip and beat Jesus with that, with that, with those metal bars and those bones and those iron pieces and shards and glass, whatever they could. The Bible says it was 39 times, one short of 40. It is believed that 40 would have possibly killed a person, so they often would beat somebody 39 times. We don't exactly know if that's literal or not, but they, the point is, is they beat him just short of death. And every time that whipped around his flesh, it would dig in and pull off the skin. Extreme blood loss. Few ever lived through this. Reducing his flesh to hamburger meat, he was dragged again before the crowd. And they shouted, crucify. They were offered two people. A person who was a zealot who sought to overthrow their government through violence. His name is Barabbas and Jesus. Who do you want? They said, give us Barabbas. What shall I do with Jesus? Crucify. Let me tell you something about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had a way of perfecting pain. They were known, uh, Nazi Germany had nothing on Roman centurions and the Roman government. They were able to inflict the kind of pain. Crucifixion was a common torture method. There were many different ways. Sometimes they were nailed to actual trees with a crossbeam. Some devices that were made into crosses, they always reused the nails. Metal was, was quite uh, scarce, and they would, they would basically crucify these people. They would crucify them and leave them there to die and it could take up to a week, three days, or until the birds pecked them to death. Well, in Jesus' case, what they did is they took Jesus, and this is wounds three and four, is his hands and his feet as they took seven-inch spikes and they began to drive them into the hands and feet of Jesus. 
and into the feet. Lacerating the nerves in his hands, dislocating his shoulders and his elbows as he was outstretched and pulled. His lungs began to collapse. Hypoxia began to set in. As he was suffocating, his lungs began to fill with fluid. The only way he could breathe was to force his feet up on those nails, on his dislocated arms and shoulders, just to get a breath. But even then, it was a short breath. And in the cross, it was not uncommon for people to go in and out of consciousness. Spasmatic convulsions as their nerves and their tendons were actually being forced to the brink of destruction. In fact, the word excruciating which we know is a word for painful, literally means out of the cross, excruciating out of the cross. It was a word created to give us the definition of the pain because there's not a word that can define the pain of the cross. A word was created, excruciating. What happened as his lungs began to fill with fluid, the heart would ultimately fail resulting in a cardiac arrest and a cardiac rupture often. Now, this would often take days. But that day, and it was custom, is that they would often go up to the people on the cross and they would break their legs. They would break their legs here and at the elbow for the sole purpose of them not being able to push themselves up to breathe. So they would break the legs. So as you read in the Bible, they actually broke the legs of the other two people crucified with him that day, along with these two criminals. But when they got to Jesus, Jesus had already given up his life. If you read the scriptures, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It is finished. And he gave his life. He gave his life. It was not taken. But when they got to Jesus thinking he was already dead instead of breaking his legs, it leads to the last wound. And that is this side. And they took a spear and they crammed it into his side. And out came water and blood, the Bible says, for his heart and lungs had already collapsed and his heart had ruptured. Another wound that I had missed was the crown of thorns, three-inch thorns crammed onto his head in critical condition and forced to carry a 120-pound cross through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha, the place called the Skull. And on that mountain, Jesus gave his life. He gave it. Now, I want you to tell you something. That piece of wood, that cross, that symbol, history has idolized it, despised it, gold-plated it, burned it, warned it, uh, worn it, and trashed it. And it is more than a piece of jewelry on our neck. It is more than a symbol of our religion. It is a altar in which Jesus gave his life. The cross is an altar. All his followers and friends, they said that they would never leave Jesus. They all ran. Imagine their shame and regret. 
What's your greatest regret? I want you to think for a moment. Three years, his friends and his disciples walked with him and saw him do the miraculous. And now he's going through the most difficult, painful, torturous moment of his life. And they ran. The regret, the shame. Some of you, you said you would be there and you left. I'll be there, son, and you weren't. I'll be married together, honey, and you didn't. The, the words that you, that you didn't keep, the shame, the regret, the, the decisions, the, the direction, the places that you ran from, and the places you ran to. If we could only erase those shameful moments. Even John, the only disciple that stood at the foot of the cross with Jesus, with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, he says this, he says, he confessed in John 29, he says, still he did not understand the scripture that Jesus was to rise from the dead. So he stood at the cross, shocked, amazed, and heartbroken. By Friday afternoon, the bodies are often left for wild animals to eat, but the followers of Jesus would not have it and they wanted Jesus buried. So Mark chapter 15, verse 40, it says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the mother, uh, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. You see, they're not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. So the day before the Sabbath, they had to do everything. They had to fix all their meals, do all their work, because on the Sabbath, they were to do nothing. It was preparation day. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, a well-known follower, a guy who is uh, well-known in the city, basically said uh, he took it upon himself, and he says, uh, who himself was watching for the kingdom of God, he went boldly to Pilate. That's the governing authorities. He went to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. Because here's the deal. They would often be left on the cross for days, knowing that they could not take Jesus down on Saturday, for it was the Sabbath. They scurried to get the body down as fast as they could and into a grave as fast as they could. Otherwise, he would have to sit there on the cross for three days. So he went to Pilate, and he pled for the body. The governing authority asked for Jesus' body, 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. He's like, what? Usually it might take a day or two. You see, Jesus gave his life, summoning the centurion. That's the forensic specialist. He asked him if Jesus had already died, and he went and checked. That might have been the moment when they jabbed that spear into his side. It says this, it says, when he came back, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. I want you to notice all the names in this short passage. James, I'm sorry, Mark is naming names, naming locations. He's telling you these are people that could testify authoritatively that Jesus was dead. He was confirmed by witnesses. There was a forensic report and there was a legal declaration by the local authority. Jesus was dead. There is no doubt about it. He did not swoon. He did not switch out. Jesus was fully 100% dead. This is what Joseph did. Joseph, knowing that he had to hurry, so Joseph brought some 
linen cloth and he took down the body and he wrapped him in linen and he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock. I love how John tells the story. He tells that Joseph of Arimathea came with a guy named Nicodemus, the same guy that Jesus gave that verse John 3.16 to. So Joseph and Nicodemus, two back row followers, were front row. They put Jesus in a tomb. John tells us that they embalmed him with over 75 pounds of oil. That means they took his body and they completely bathed him and washed him in that oil. And then they had 20 pounds of fabric and cloth and they wrapped Jesus in 20 pounds of cloth. But they had to hurry for as the sun went down, they had to be out of the tomb in a way. When sun went down, Sabbath began, they weren't allowed to do anything says this, then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. Joseph's grave was a well-known location. He was a well-known player in the city. There is no doubt about it. Mary and Martha were there. I'm sorry, Mary and Mary were there. Two Marys, Mary, Mary. And Joseph and Nicodemus, everybody knew where the grave was. It was not a lost tomb. It was not somehow they went to the wrong place. So day one, Friday, Jesus was dead, physically buried. Reality must have hit, for none of them believed that he was yet to rise again. Their future was buried, and they all went home to cry. And what happens on Saturday is very little is known. The very physical body of Jesus sat in a grave, wrapped in 20 pounds of of cloth after being embalmed with 100-plus pounds of oil. He laid in that rich man's tomb. It was Sabbath, so they waited for Sunday because they did not finish and they were going to come back on Sunday, we find out, to finish the embalming process. They were going to go on Sunday to anoint him and to finish wrapping him. Matthew 27 records that the religious leaders were worried that they were going to steal the body, so that is on Saturday that they put Roman centurions at the at the gate of that tomb to guard, to make sure that Jesus was going nowhere. I can imagine the knots in their stomach, the emptiness of losing someone you love, but Jesus said, but Jesus said, but Jesus said that this was going to happen, that he would change the world, that we would walk with him, that, that the kingdom of God was forever. But Jesus said, I don't get it. But the grave said it was over. The grave said he was dead. And all we know Saturday is that they lingered close to Jesus. And I want you to write this down, is this, is that when it's Saturday in your life, linger close to Jesus. You see, nowhere to go, no money, no energy, no direction, everything lost. I think they stayed because they loved Jesus. They just wanted to be close to him. A few years ago, my mother passed away. And I remember being there when she died. And uh, um, I came uh, to, to, she was in a hospice and I came to the place where she was and she had donated her body to science. So they were, there was going to be no burial. There was going to be no casket. It was, they were going to come and take her. And then that would be the last time I ever saw her. And, and I remember I, all my other family were, were not in town and I was the only one there. And, and it took about two and a half, three hours for them to come. And, and, and I wasn't leaving that room. Nothing was going to pull me out of that room. I, I just wanted to be with my mother. I just wanted to be close to her. 
And I think that that's what the disciples might have done. Jesus was gone. Everything they had, everything they believed was buried, but they loved him. They just wanted to be close. When it's Saturday in your life, do you run or do you linger? Stay close to Jesus. For three short years, they watched him and they walked with him. And they saw miracles for three long days in the depths of despair. They saw their dreams buried. The story does not end there. First Corinthians 15 says, however, if we have hope in Christ only for this life, we're the most miserable people in the world. But the fact is, everybody say the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, I'm going to pass something out, and I'm going to have, have you help me out here. Uh, Jeff, if you could take these and just uh, everybody just pick one of your choice. I'm going to take this. You, you can start in the back so that I know when it's done if you want. This is what it says in Luke 24. Jesus is back, baby, day three. Check this out. He says, Luke 24, verse 1, On the first day of the week, that Sunday, very early in the morning, the women, Mark identifies them as Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome, who's also known as Joanna in one of the other books. She says, They took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Because they were rushed on Friday, they were going to finish the job of embalming. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. They saw angels. Matthew records this it says the angel said to the women he says do not be afraid for i know that you're looking for jesus who is crucified and he is not here he has risen just as he said it was an unbelievable thing he'd come back to life if the gospels were a hoax by the way they would have not have used the testimony of women because at that time the testimony of women was not even approved of or allowed in court but Jesus chose women to be the people who he revealed himself to in fact antagonists against the gospel tried to use that it was women to discredit the resurrection but Jesus says you know what this is how much i love women this is how much i love men because i believe the gospel is for everyone He says this in Mark, Mark's account, uh, verse 6 of chapter 16. He says, don't be alarmed. He says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And tell those faithless backstabbers I'm coming for him and hell is coming with me. No, he didn't say that. These are guys that ran out on him, and Jesus says, Hey, ladies, you guys were at the cross. Tell the, tell the disciples I'm, I'm coming to body slam. Actually, I like this. Why single out Peter? Why did he say the disciples in Peter? For it was Peter who denied Christ three times, and all of heaven saw Peter fail. Mark is believed to be the transcribed notes of Peter. So this is Peter who's actually writing Mark as he's dictating it to his disciple, Minty, who he's mentoring, Mark. And he says, I can imagine, I can see tears rolling down his face when he gets to this part. All of heaven saw him fail, but Jesus says, you know what? I'm not finished with you. What would cause a man to be crucified upside down as Peter was? A second chance 
from the Son of God. And you know what? God's not finished with you either. Maybe you've run out on God. Maybe you've never even known him and you've never even given him a second thought. Maybe you are here just because someone dragged you. God's not finished with you. In Hebrew, they might have said, Allah Yeshua HaMashiach. In Aramaic, they would have said, Eyosha Mashiachacha. And in Greek, they would have said, Egero Isus Christos, which means Christ is risen. Christ the Messiah is risen. I want to talk about Yegido for a minute because Yegido means to awaken, to arouse from the dead. And this is exactly what they would have said. They would have said, He is Yegido. First Corinthians 15, 17, uh, 19 says, If Christ has not been raised, if Christ is not Yegido, your faith is futile. And we are of all people to be pitied. If, if he's not alive, this is a waste of time. These songs are silly. All of creation hinges on the resurrection. We must all deal with the claims of Yegedo. It is more than a myth. First Peter says this, Peter, the disciple, wrote this. He says, in his, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth. That's a new start. That's a new life. Into a living hope. That's a new future. That's a new hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Though it is a mystery, this is all done through the resurrection. If this is true... If the grave is not only empty, but if Jesus is alive and he is victoriously on the throne, then he's not a passive, girly, weak, emaciated, scrawny, little abused hippie. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he demands our life. If this is true, Egito changes everything. Now, there are three types of people in this room that believe in the Egito. And I want to give them to you real quick. There's three types of believers. There is the casual believer. And I think this is where a lot of people are. This is someone who is a good person. They, they believe in God. They're a Christer. They become a Christian on Easter. Realistically, they're, they're, you're a practical atheist. The resurrection nor the word of God transforms or impacts your daily life at all. This is how some of you are. Then there is the convenient believer. That's the person who you're a follower when it's convenient, if it helps you. In a business deal, you say, I'm a Christian or I go to church. When you're trying to buy a car, when you make your business card, you might put a fish on there because it's convenient. To be seen, maybe you're a guy and you're trying to pick up a girl so you show up at church. Or you're a girl and you want to pick up some guy, you want to be seen by a guy. So you raise your hands and pretend you're worshiping. Yeah, I'm a Christian. See the cross on my neck, see my tattoo? It's legit. It's convenient. And then there is the committed Christian, the committed believer. That's the kind that Jesus calls us to. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Jesus said that this is way more than fire insurance. This is more than a get-out-of-jail card. This is life that is about living for the king and living to glorify him, living to reflect him. Anything short of that is not a follower of Christ. This is Jesus 
challenging us. So how do we get there? In these last couple minutes, I want to tell you how you can have the transforming power of the resurrection transform your life these last few minutes by someone who's considered the biggest doubter of all. Who's the biggest doubter in the Bible? Some of you guys might know for the story of doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Here's the background of, doubt, of doubting Thomas. Well, I think he shouldn't be called that. He was uneducated. He was uh, a fisherman. Unlikely choice. By the way, Jesus often chose people who were overlooked. Uh, Thomas left everything to follow Jesus for three and a half years. And when Jesus died, he was devastated. And when they gathered together, Thomas was a wall. I don't know. Maybe he was, he was going to get groceries. Maybe he was on a walk. Maybe he was, went back fishing. I don't know. We don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. And then when Jesus had, you get, oh, he showed up and he walked through that place. For Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene, to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then that night, he appeared to the rest of the disciples, minus one, who was AWOL, Thomas. Jesus said, it's me. Thomas shows up later. Jesus had already been gone. And they were like, Thomas, you'll never guess who came. Jesus is alive. You're like, man, you guys are so uncool. That is the cruelest, meanest joke. No, Thomas, for real, he was here. Oh, you guys are making me mad. Unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I put my hands in those wounds, I won't believe it. This is what he said in John 20, verse 25. He says, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I have to know for myself. It demands proof. I want you to realize this, is that the road to committed belief begins with wonder. You might also put doubt there. The road to committed belief might begin with doubt. You know, I was taught growing up never to doubt God. Never doubt God. His existence, his belief, never doubt the resurrection, never doubt anything. When I gave my life to Christ, I was a young man, a teenager, and I was always told, uh, you know, just suppress it. Don't ask questions. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus can handle the questions. If you're here today and you're like, you know what? I got so many questions. I got so many doubts. Man, I wonder so much about the Bible. I I can't be a Christian because I, I don't believe it all. I don't know what I believe. Well, that's a good place to begin because it means you're thinking about it. You're wondering about it. You're, you're, you're having to search your heart. You're not just being spoon-fed what to believe, but you're actually having to make it your own. And I believe that's a great place to start. In fact, even some of the disciples, they were doubters too, not just Thomas. Look at this in Matthew 28. This is after the resurrection. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. This is after the resurrection. He's standing in front of them. And they're like, I don't know if I get I don't know. I don't know if I believe this. I'm right here. I don't, I don't know. Hello, pinch me, somebody. They doubted. 
Honest questions of doubt deserve honest answers. And God can handle your questions. How can God allow certain things? How is there evil? Why did my mother die? Why is there pain and suffering? Why does this little boy have cancer? God, I want to know some answers. Well, God says, well, come on. Ask me the questions. I can handle it. The great place to begin your walk with faith is to begin with doubt, to begin with wonder. If you seek the answers, you will find. In fact, the Bible is full. Every great hero of the Bible was a doubter. Abraham doubted God. Isaac doubted God. Jacob doubted God. Joseph doubted God. David doubted God. Elijah doubted God. Of course, Thomas doubted God. Peter doubted God. Other disciples doubted God. Some of the greatest people of our modern day faith all became as became atheists or who started off as atheists doubting God who in their search and wonder became great authors like C.S. Lewis was a non-believer atheist, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell. John 20 says this, a week later his disciples were in the house again. Jesus didn't show up for a week. Think about that. He shows up a week later. Jesus shows up again. Could you live on that for a week? I don't think I could. If the person who I'd given my life to to serve had risen from the dead and he says, I'll see you guys later, I'd be like, what, tomorrow? You're going to come tomorrow? You're come tonight? Can I go with you? Because I don't want this whole, like, separation thing again, Jesus. I didn't like it. When he left, think about it, for a whole week, Thomas is like, man, you guys suck. <laughs> We're like, no, Thomas, for real. It's, it's, it's this happened. Man. A whole week later, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. He's like, man, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you need groceries? Send, you know, James over there. I'm, I'm sticking in case Jesus shows up. It says, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Man, he walked right through the walls. By the way, there's no wall you can put up that can keep God out of you and out of your life and out of your heart. When he says he wants you, he can walk through those walls of fear and doubt. He walked through the wall and he said, peace be with you. That's what he said, what's up, brother? Actually, the word there is shalom, which means may your life be blessed to the fullest. He's like, hey, man, how awesome is it? You are blessed. And then it says this. Then he said to Thomas, says, hi, everybody. Thomas, you good for nothing doubter. <laughs> he said this. He said, no, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. I want you to write this down. Is the true doubt and wonder will often be followed by discovery. Like Thomas, we must discover it ourselves. Some of you, you are Christians because your parents are. Guess what? You're not a Christian simply because your parents are. Being in a car does, in a garage does not make you a car. Sitting in McDonald's does not make you a chicken nugget. You must discover your walk with God on your own. And some of you, your wife is a believer and you're not. You must find Jesus for yourself. Young people, you must find Jesus for yourself. Adults, your children are on fire and you are so distant. You're playing the game. You must discover Jesus for yourself. I love this. Ever wonder why Jesus left the scars on his hands and feet when it was his whole body that was mutilated for us? 
His whole body was ripped to shreds, his back into hamburger meat, the scars on his face from those thorns, and his beard ripped out. And those, you know, they beat him with the rod also, causing deep lacerations. Here's Jesus, and he is healed and whole, but he has this scars on his hands and his side. Of all the scars, he left, he could have taken them. He healed the leper and made them brand new. He put an ear back on a guy's head. And it's on. Healed. He didn't have to have the scars. Why would he have the scars? And by the way, it didn't mention them a week earlier. It mentions them now. If you remember Thomas, he said, unless I touch the nail marks and his side, I will not believe. Jesus did exactly what Thomas needed to believe. The scars were for Thomas. And I believe God will do the same for you. God may not do what you want him to do to believe, but he will do what you need him to do to believe. And the Holy Spirit is working on you now. And those questions that you have are okay. God's working in you, working on you. God will meet you there. God is here today. He's meeting you now. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Reading, praying, talking with mature Christians. Man, God might even use a miracle to reveal himself to you. Some of the most powerful words in the Bible follow out of the mouth of Thomas. And some of the most dangerous words ever recorded in the scriptures. John twenty twenty eight, after he touched the hands inside of Jesus, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Why is this so dangerous? Because he basically declared himself a blasphemer to the Jewish authorities, punishable by death by saying, Jesus, you are truly Lord and God. Write this down. This is the last thing. Discovery leads to unshakable faith. The so-called doubting Thomas He went on to be the greatest evangelistic missionary in the world of India ever. Still monuments are there to his work today. Told to renounce or die, history has Thomas in India said that he must denounce. And Thomas says, I will not deny the one who died for me. History has it recorded that Thomas was tied to a tree and a stake was driven right through his chest into the tree. Thomas had great faith. It was not casual. Nor was it convenient. His faith was unshakable. And I want you to write this down. Thomas' belief was committed enough to die for Jesus. Is your belief committed enough to live for Jesus? John 20, 29 says, Then the Lord said to Thomas, He said, Thomas, because you've seen me and believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to tell you something. I have a scar on my chest. It's a pretty ugly scar. What would have been a normal just line turned into like this big circle of a, of a mess of on my chest. I was diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of cancer in 2009, and I'm four years cancer-free, thank God. Uh, when I went through my chemotherapy, I had a metaport. It's a device implanted into your chest so that they can stick that big needle of chemotherapy into your chest and it goes straight to your heart and to your blood system. Well, my metaport was, uh, well, was put in uh, and it hadn't healed 
uh, in time before I got the chemo. So my metaport kept opening up and, and was, was not figuratively, but literally uh, coming out of my chest every week. And every seven to eight days, I had to get it sewn back in. But every time it was sewn back in, it would destroy the flesh around it until about four months into it. It was like protruding out of my chest. And I'm like, I've only got like a month left of chemo. And I'm like, can I, you know, keep it in? I didn't know. I went to my doctor. I was hoping it wasn't going to have to be. I was expecting to be sewed in again one more time. And, and he looked at his, yeah, it's going to have to come out. And I'm like, when? He goes, right now. And he sat me down on a table and he yanked it out right out of my heart, the entire thing, this long thing, and ripped this hole out of my chest. And he sewed it up to the best of his ability. But it made this real ugly scar on my chest. It showed my skin to be kind of pooled and kind of weird. But let me tell you something. When I had cancer, I had... I believed in somebody that I couldn't see. I had nothing to have my hope in but Yegiru Allah Yeshua Hamashiach. And I trusted in something that I could not see. And I trusted my, my life to the risen king, whether I lived or died, that Jesus would reign and live in me. And let me tell you something. I have this scar that reminds me every day that Jesus took my wounds. He took my sin. He took my sickness. He took my shame. And his scars remain. He kept his scars so that my scars could be healed. He took upon himself pain and suffering so that I might be relieved of my pain and suffering. The cross tells my story. It tells of my abuse. It tells of my shame, of my anger, of my regret, of my neglect. But guess what? The cross and the grave are empty and those scars on him are a declaration that our scars can be healed. Some of you, your scars are deep. It might be scars of pain and abuse that you've gone through as a child. It might be scars of abandonment of someone you loved and trusted that left you. It might be scars of pain and suffering and questions of a parent or of a child. Pain, the scars are deep. But Jesus says, I've taken your scars. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. Some of you guys may not realize this, but I was, uh, before I was going to be a preacher, I wanted to be an artist. And I went through, uh, I was planning on going to the Texas Art Institute. All through uh, high school, I had studied art and uh, was doing art and still had that portfolio. And this is one of my favorite type of art uh, items. This is an eraser. And this was called a, a, a rubber kneaded, kneaded eraser. And uh, basically, it's kind of neat. When you are an artist and you, you uh, make a mistake on your paper, you take this eraser, or maybe you've done something that you want to undo, but you can't. Or if you have, have drawn something that is just disastrous, you get this cool eraser and you just... You erase it like a regular eraser, but what you, what you find is, is that this eraser, your pain of that mistake, that frustration of that drawing or, or that mess up is now transported to this eraser. And you can often see it as you erase it is actually the eraser takes on that mistake. But what's cool about this eraser is that when you pull it apart, when you break it, when you tear it apart, when you kind of knead it and see it fall into pieces and put it back together and twist it and mutilate it, guess what? Your mistakes that it has taken on, it's pretty amazing. They disappear from this eraser. 
It's the brokenness and the twistiness. It's the mutilating of this eraser that actually cleanses the eraser. I gave you a very interesting gift today for Easter, and that is an eraser. Everybody hold up your eraser. Now, some of you guys uh, got different types. They're little tiny things, but I want you, to, want you to do something for me. In your hand is a reminder of what the cross has done for us. It has cleansed us. It has washed us. And Christ, who was torn and broken for us, has taken your sin and erased it. Some of you guys, you've got a lot <laughs> that you would love to have erased. Some of you haven't been around long, to, around long enough to have a lot of mistakes, but all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's plan, and we need Jesus. I want you to take that eraser home, and I want you to remember that Jesus was torn apart for you to erase our sin. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus asks a really cool question. He says, do you believe this? So I want to ask you something. Do you believe this today? Do you believe that what Christ has done was really something that happened, that worked? The purpose of the resurrection was not for Jesus to conquer death, but for you to. The purpose was not about Jesus coming back to life, but the intent was for us to have the power to have a transformed life. Moments before the crucifixion of Jesus, he was brought before the crowd, and they said, here's Barabbas, and here's Jesus. Here's something interesting you may have never known. In the oldest manuscripts of the Bible, you know what Barabbas' first name is? Jesus. Barabbas' first name is Jesus. Jesus Barabbas, which means Jesus, son of Abba, or son of father which was a name at that time. So I can imagine Pilate standing before the crowd saying, do you want, in Matthew 26, he says, at that time they had a notorious prisoner, that is a conspirator named Barabbas, whose name is actually Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one of you do you want? Do you want Jesus Barabbas or you want Jesus who is called the Christ? Two revolutionaries, two wanting to ignite a new kingdom, two in opposite ends. In many ways, I think Barnabas represents the Jesus that we have chosen because Barnabas represents one who believes that victory is through the death of others while Jesus through the death of himself. One in his own ability, the other in the power of God. One, this says, pull yourself up and the other says surrender yourself up one who says the savior is yourself and one who says the savior who is God one who is dead and gone and turned to dust and one who was buried and rose again from the grave you have a choice who do you want the one who tried his best and failed or the one who accomplished redemption through the resurrection You see, the story of Easter is not asking us to believe in the idea or the concept 
or even to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The story of Easter is that we are meant to meet this person who is raised from the dead, Christ our King. Father, thank you so much, Lord, that you are with us. You are faithful, God, to forgive us. And Lord, as we are, many of us, dead in our sin, God, you are alive, and we are alive in you, Father. God, I thank you that you are risen, the cross is empty, and you are alive. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.